0: Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Part 2. Darkness Gathers. I pointed out to you the stars. And all you saw was the tip of my finger. Tanzanian proverb. If the tiger sits... Do not think it is out of respect. Melodic Proverb Chapter 9 Chief Van Jackson got the call Saturday morning. Someone had turned up missing. Tawanda Gary, 19 years old, had vanished from the home at which she was babysitting last night. The woman of the house had come home late from work and discovered that her two children were home alone. And when her worthless pothead man came in at dawn, he was clueless too. A call to Tawanda's grandmother, whom she lived with, didn't turn up any leads either. Her grandmother hadn't seen Tawanda since she had left to babysit. Tawanda's vehicle, an old Ford Escort, remained parked under the carport of the house at which she had been working. Kidnapping and abduction were extremely rare cases in Dark Corner. Jackson had handled an abduction case only once, and that had been over 10 years ago. Murder was equally rare. The only murder in recent memory was when a man killed his wife in the midst of a domestic dispute. And the murderer had actually called Jackson personally to give himself up. I'm sorry, I I sighed on that because when you can write about it, it's an issue in the real world and when one out of four women in the world are experiencing domestic violence and two out of five women who were murdered are murdered by their significant other it's time to stop writing about it and start doing something about it if y'all were going to donate to me today donate to Weave please please Sorry. Intuition warned Jackson that this case wasn't going to be so easy. He began the investigation the best way he knew how, by talking to folks. Saturday morning, Jackson spent a while talking to the family who'd hired Tawanda to babysit. The woman was forthright and trustworthy, a hardworking lady who held down two jobs to make ends meet. He knew her folks, too. They were good people. But he wasn't impressed by her living man, Andre. In his early 30s, Andre was a known drug user and had never worked a stable job in his life. He hung out at the basketball courts and the car wash with his buddies, smoking weed and drinking beer. If laziness were a felony, Andre would have been serving a double life sentence. Every time Jackson saw the man, he thought of Jalil and what could happen to his boy if he didn't get his life on track. If Jalil's attitude didn't change, Jalil was Andre in a few years. Jackson hated the pathetic image that Andre set for the younger boys in town. But his main problem with Andre on this day was that he was sure the guy was hiding something related to the girl's disappearance. Come outside with me for a minute, will you? Jackson said to Andre while they were in the small living room. I want to chat with you. I'm really tired. Andre yawned dramatically. I was out all night. Ain't gonna take but a minute, Jackson said. Reluctantly, Andre followed him outdoors. Jackson leaned against the patrol car. Andre watched him, his hands buried in the pockets of his baggy jeans, restlessly jingling coins. Andre didn't look tired. He looked scared. First off, Jackson said, I don't care about your reputation for smoking weed. We ain't here to talk about that. But I don't smoke, don't start lying to me, all right, Jackson said. I don't want to hear it. It ain't the issue. Andre drew in a shaky breath. I don't know what happened to Wanda, Chief. I really don't. Jackson removed his hat and began to straighten the brim. I'm the kind of man, I listen to my intuition. You know what it tells me? It tells me you're telling the truth. Part of it. I ain't lying, Chief, Andre said. I rolled out as soon as she got here to watch the boys, and when I got back to the crib, my woman was already here and said that Tawanda was gone. I don't know nothing. Jackson had finished flattening the edge of the hat. He set it back on his head. What are you scared of, Andre? You're shaking like a leaf. Andre lowered his head. I ain't scared. You got fear stamped all over you, buddy. Andre dragged his hand down his face. Look, I can't talk about it. Can't talk about what? You can't hide information that can help solve a crime. That's obstruction of justice, buddy. You serve time for that. Andre raised his head. His eyes were wet looking as though he were about to cry. You need to check out the crib up there, Andre said. He quickly motioned towards the horizon, then dropped his arm as if he had gotten an electric shock. Any wicked shit going down here? You better look up there first. Jackson had followed the man's finger. The only house up there was the Mason place. A coldness wrapped around Jackson, like a mantle of ice. All right now, Jackson said, you got to explain what you mean. What's Jubilee got to do with the girl? Hell nah, Andre said. I done already told you too much. I ain't getting any deeper into this shit. Andre fled inside the house. He slammed the door in Jackson's face. Jackson knocked. Open up, buddy. We ain't done chatting. No one answered. Jackson knocked again, then rang the doorbell. And still they ignored him. It surprised him. He had never faced resistance like this from folks in his own town. But one thing was clear. Andre was scared out of his mind. He briefly considered using some official force to make Andre speak to him, but he decided against the idea. The guy was flat out too scared to talk, and he had directed Jackson towards a source that might bear fruit. Jackson didn't like to push folks too hard. It wasn't his style. A good thing, really. Because in a small town like this, He'd never need to be that tough to get the job done. He only hoped that this case would not push him over the edge. Sighing, he walked back to the cruiser. He glanced at the Mason house, sitting way up there on the hill. All week, he had procrastinated visiting the house's mysterious new resident, the bald-headed, sharply-dressed black man he had seen driving around town in a Lexus SUV. He told himself that he was too busy fighting crime to squander energy on a small-town pleasantry. But if he were being honest with himself, he had to admit that the house made him uneasy. Like most residents his age who lived in Dark Corner their entire lives, he had grown up hearing frightening tales about Edward Mason's mansion. It was not easy to dislodge images, stories, and rhymes that had been planted in your head when you were a kid. He got inside the car. Snippets of childhood rhymes about the house came to mind. Fast Eddie's always ready. Gonna tear out your heart like it's confetti. I didn't like that. I'm gonna do it again. Fast Eddie's always ready. Gonna tear your heart out like confetti. I don't like that either. What's the rhyme pattern on this? Fast Eddie's always ready. Gonna tear your heart out like confetti. I I don't know. That's weird. I mean, maybe they stumbled through those last words, but why? Fast Eddie's always ready. Gonna tear your heart out like it's confetti. I can see kids doing that, I guess. I don't know. The second one is easier. I got this one. One, two, buckle your shoe or something in a mason place to come and get you. <laughs> that one's funny. Jackson grasped the steering wheel in an iron grip. I don't want to go up there, he thought. Lord help me, I don't want to set foot near that place. As he drove away, it seemed that a gravitational force prevented him from driving towards Jubilee. He drove, instead, to pick up some donuts and coffee, feeling like a coward every block of the way. Malcolm, the mutt that Franklin had taken a liking to in the past year, did not show up for his morning meal. Like one of Pavlov's hounds, The canine usually came running to the house within minutes of Franklin filling the bowl with Purina dog food at nine o'clock. Franklin whistled. (whistles) Malcolm, it's time to eat, my friend. The dog always entered the yard from the alley, squeezing between the garage and the dumpster. But the dog did not appear. Franklin frowned. He waited outside a few more minutes, and when Malcolm didn't appear, he went inside. Ruby sat at the kitchen table, sipping coffee and reading the newspaper. He settled into a chair beside her. My dog is gone, he said. He'll probably turn up in a little bit, Ruby said. Don't worry, honey. Malcolm isn't wearing a watch, you know. Of course, he said, not sure if he agreed with his wife's opinion at all. He had a feeling that something terrible had happened to the dog. Perhaps it had been struck by a vehicle, or injured in a fight with another animal, or had eaten something that made him ill, or perhaps something worse. He did not understand the cold finger of dread that traced along its back. It resisted rational explanation. It was a presentiment of doom, like smelling the sour odor of an imminent thunderstorm. Malcolm's disappearance was a bad sign of something. But what? Jalil's father required that he go to the police station at 9 o'clock on Saturday morning to clean. Jalil arrived on his bicycle a few minutes before 10 o'clock, almost an hour later than Dad had asked him to be there. Thankfully, his father wasn't there to jump on his case about being late. The deputy, Ray Dedue, was the only person in the office. He was a nice guy, if a little weird. You need to start reading the real news, Jalil, Dudu said, as Jalil swept the floor. Dudu raised the latest tabloid he had been reading. It had a lurid headline. Lazarus in Arizona, man rises from the dead. The chief won't let me showing these to you, but I have a responsibility to share the truth. Sure, Jalil said. Man, what a nut. Where did dad found this guy? As Jalil pondered how to respond to the loony deputy, his father's patrol car pulled up. The two hurriedly put away the tabloids. Morning, fellas, Dad said. He tossed his hat on the desk. I ain't made no progress, really, on the missing girl. No one knows much of nothing. What missing girl? Jalil asked. It was the first he had heard of it. Dad sat in his desk chair and leaned back crossing his fingers across his stomach. Twanda Gray lives around Boone Drive with her grandma. She was babysitting last night and has turned up missing. An image flashed with startling vividness in Jalil's mind. A man putting a large covered object inside the back of a Lexus SUV. A package that had a pair of dangling legs. At the time he'd seen it, he'd been convinced that he was not imagining things. But the fellas had talked him out of it, saying the weed was making him hallucinate. But what if it had really happened, just like he'd seen? What if he was the only witness to the crime? You got a funny look on your face, son, Dad said. You know something about this? Jalil chewed his lip. He told his father everything. Shit, Dad said. Jalil rarely heard Dad cuss. But Dad continued. Shit, shit, shit. What's wrong? The deputy said. That Lexus truck, Dad grabbed his hat and rose, belongs to the fellow who moved into the Mason place. For the first time in years, the last time being the day the doctor had announced that his mother had cancer, Jalil thought his father looked afraid. Jubilee was the last house in the world that Van Jackson wanted to visit. But he couldn't procrastinate any longer. If what his boy had said was true, and he had no reason to suspect that Jalil had lied, the fellow who had moved into this place was the prime suspect in the girl's disappearance. It was Jackson's duty to question the guy, and arrest him if need be. Jackson parked in front of the tall iron gates. Clouds passed over the morning sun, cloaking the world in grayish shadows. It had been many years since he had last visited the Mason place. He'd last been there to investigate a vagrant who was squatting in the house. The guy had gotten inside through a window. When Jackson discovered the man, he was not prepared for what he had seen. The guy feasted on dead animals and insects. A stinking heap of crows, squirrels, beetles, flies, and spiders were spread at his feet, like a hellish buffet. Pull up a chair and have a bite the man had said in a raspy voice. There's plenty of food to go around. He bit the brittle head of a beetle and chewed with pleasure. Jackson had gagged, then arrested the man. It turned out the guy had escaped from a psychiatric hospital in Memphis. But those were the kind of incidents that happened at Jubilee. Nothing but bad, bizarre things. Jackson got out of the car. It was strangely quiet up there. The mason place might have been located atop a mountaintop, far away from human habitation. Jackson felt his heart whamming like a bass drum. The Lexus Sport utility was parked at the end of a long driveway. The resident was home. Public enemy number one. Jackson walked to the gate. It wasn't locked. He pressed a lever, and the gate opened with a soft squeak. He went inside. He rested his hand on the butt of his three hundred fifty seven Magnum. Pushed by a stiff breeze, the gate clanged shut behind him. As the summoned by the noise, a group of dogs bolted out of the deep shadows beneath the trees. Big ones. Four of them. They barked, snapped, and growled. Shit. Talk about a mess. He didn't have time to make it outside before they caught him. They are moving fast, faster than he had ever seen hounds run. The hell were these mutts raised on? He snatched his .357 out of the holster. He backed up against the fence, aiming the gun in front of him. The dogs surrounded him in a loose semicircle. They were a ragtag pack of mutts. They growled, thick saliva dripping from their mouths, their eyes wild and red, but they did not attack. He figured they must have been trained to capture and only attack if their quarry tried to get away. He didn't dare try to run. He would never make it. In fact, though he had the gun, he didn't feel confident about his chances if he took a crack at the mutts. He could take down one of the hounds with a bullet, but if they decided to attack him as one, he was finished. His mouth was dry. The dogs glared at him as if challenging him to make a move. Damned if they didn't look him right in the eye. They held no fear of him. I ain't never seen no dogs act like this. A man dressed in black emerged from the house. He strolled across the driveway. He wore a long, heavy jacket, a hat, aviator shades, boots, and oddly, gloves. The temperature outdoors was in the low 90s. Wasn't this guy burning up in all those clothes? But the most noticeable thing was that this was not the man Jackson had seen driving the Lexus around town. That guy had been shorter and stout. He had never seen this guy before. As the man approached, he raised his hand. A gesture the dogs could not have possibly seen. And the canines backed away, as if he controlled them with puppet strings. Jackson cleared his throat. Something damn strange was going on here. He lowered the gun, but he did not put it away. I'm Chief Jackson, he said. I'm here on police business. Greetings, Chief, the man said. How may I help you? The fellow had an odd, untraceable accent. French, kinda, but not exactly. Jackson couldn't pin it down. Nice dogs, Jackson said. The canines had retreated into the shadows. He finally holstered the gun. Think they want to take a plug out of me. They might have, if I had not been present, the man said. You ventured on a private property, may I remind you. I ain't here to snoop around. Got some police business to discuss with you. The man folded his arms across his chest. I'm all ears. Jackson took his handkerchief out of his pocket and mopped sweat off his forehead. Say, aren't you hot with all those dark, heavy clothes on? Last time I checked, it was 90-some degrees out here. I'm comfortable, the man said, in a tone that invited no discussion about his choice of clothing. You were saying about the purpose of your visit? We got a girl in town turned up missing. Black. Black. 19 years old. We got a reliable witness who said late last night, a tall fellow wearing black, kind of like you, was seen putting what looked like a body in the back of a silver Lexus SUV. Just like the one parked up there by the house. Jackson watched the man's reaction closely, looking for a facial tick that indicated discomfort or guilt. But the man's poker face did not change, though Jackson could not see his eyes because of the dark shades he wore. If I understand this correctly, the man said, you suspect that I was involved in the disappearance of this young lady. Suspicion is kind of pointing towards you having something to do with it, Jackson said. Where's the bald headed man who lives here? Kind of stocky. I saw him driving through town a couple times. He's away. But he's not the man you want, chief. I'm the one. I am guilty. Jackson was not often taken by surprise, but his mouth slipped open. You're telling me you're guilty? Jackson said. You're confessing? I abducted the young lady, the man said. He smoothly removed his glasses. Jackson gasped. This guy's eyes. Dear God, they are like twin black holes that sucked Jackson right into him. Jackson could not look away. A force as powerful as gravity compelled him to stand rigid and gaze, deeply, into the man's inhuman eyes. Fellas done something to my mind, Jackson thought dimly. Reached in and taken control of it, like in those Star Wars movies. He's working a Jedi mind trick on me, so help me God. As Jackson stood, entranced, the world receded as if swept away by a strong tide. The only reality was the man's eyes. Jackson no longer felt the oppressive heat and humidity. He no longer felt the ground under his feet and the sweat-drenched clothes that clung to his body. He no longer tasted the traces of coffee that he had sipped only minutes ago. No longer heard the soft wind that drifted across the yard. The man's eyes were his world, his universe. They were everything. When the man spoke again, his resonant voice was inside Jackson's head. Chief Jackson, you are an honorable man and desire to serve your people, but now you will bend to a power greater than yourself. I require the young woman for purposes that you cannot fathom in your mortal imagination. You will not arrest me. You will not question me further. You will not harbor any suspicion of those who currently dwell in this property. When you leave this place and continue your investigation into the woman's disappearance, you will direct your attention elsewhere. When you leave this place, you will not remember seeing me or the dogs. When you leave this place, the idea of ever visiting this residence again will fill you with paralyzing fear. You will not remember me issuing these commands to you. You will act upon them as though they spring from your own consciousness. Do you understand? Yes, Jackson said. "'Numbly, not feeling his own lips move. "'There was a popping sound, like fingers snapping. "'Jackson blinked. "'He stood in front of Jubilee's gates, alone. "'Such sudden terror overcame him that he nearly collapsed. "'It was a wild, senseless fright, like a child's fear of the darkness. "'But he could not rationalize it away, "'could not argue it into submission.' He was convinced that if he stood for another second on this property, the earth would buckle and erupt open like a hungry, gaping mouth and swallow him whole. Jesus, 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 babbling, he ran to his patrol car. He hustled behind the wheel and roared away, spinning up gravel. He did not look back. Concealed in the shadows under a maple tree, the dogs flanking him, Kyle watched the police officer flee in his vehicle. Mother frowned upon controlling the minds of men. She believed in finding peaceful ways to coexist with humans and manipulating them through subtle, indirect means. Mind control was only to be used in the most extreme situations. Kyle doubted that Mother would approve of what he had done to the chief, but so be it. His father approved. Father had encouraged him to confront the police officer and command him to do his bidding. Kyle loved his growing confidence in exercising his talents. Being in his father's presence was transforming him, freeing him. He could feel the shackles of mother's stringent rules falling away from his spirit, liberating him to become the powerful vampire that he had the right to be. A vampire like his father. You must claim your birthright, my son, Diallo had said. I am a king, and you are my prince. Put away childish things and be my prince. Kyle knelt in the grass. The hounds pressed close to him, competing for his attention. They were eager to fulfill his will, the will of a prince. Tonight, he would hunt again for his father, and he would take the dogs. Late Saturday morning, David went to visit Pearl the reputed psychic who he suspected had called him yesterday. He wanted to find out why she had warned him and what she could tell him about his father and the bizarre events that were going on lately. Naya had given him directions to the woman's house. Pearl lived on the northern edge of town in a small, one-story home that sat at the end of a long, dusty path ranked with oak and maple trees. David parked at the end of the drive beside a white Jeep Cherokee. A screened-in porch fronted the house. David climbed the short flight of steps to ring the doorbell. He found a note taped to the door handle. The message, written in neat cursive handwriting, read, I'm waiting for you in the back, David. His breath caught in his throat. How did she know that he was coming there? A cool breeze whispered around him, tinkling the wind chimes inside the veranda. Feeling slightly lightheaded, he walked around the side of the house. He wandered into the rambling backyard, and it was like walking into a botanical garden. Bright flowers and lush plants grew everywhere. He saw a small figure moving amongst the flourishing rose garden in the far corner of the yard. That was where he was headed. He was unprepared to see what Pearl looked like. She appeared to be in her early 20s. She was short. Perhaps five feet tall and petite. Her lustrous black hair was woven in a thin braids that hung to the middle of her back. She had large, almond shaped brown eyes. Her smooth skin was the color of mocha. She wore a green tank top, denim shorts, and sandals. She's like a black China doll, David thought. However, her beauty was not the sort that brought to mind swimsuit models or voluptuous women in hip hop videos. Hers was the beauty of delicate features that were sculpted in perfect balance. She looked at him, holding a yellow rose between her slender fingers. A large monarch butterfly crept along the petals. I'm David Hunter, he said. You called me yesterday. She smiled. Her voice was soft and musical. Greetings, David Hunter. You arrived just when I thought you would. How did you know I was coming? How did I know the sun would rise this morning? It was meant to happen. He frowned. Was this what talking to her would be like? Sentences full of new age babble? Pearl cocked her head and smiled. She knows what I'm thinking, he thought. She knows that I'm a skeptic. Why did you call me? he asked. Your name was given to me. I had not known that you had moved into the town. And I dialed the number, not knowing whether anyone would answer. But of course, you did. What do you mean my name was given to you? By whom? I am only a receiver, David. I receive messages, and it's my responsibility to pass them to the intended party. So you get psychic radio waves or something. She shrugged. That's a crude analogy, but yes. She sat gracefully on the ground, crisscross applesauce, a colorful wall of flowers behind her. Sit with me and rest. He hesitated for a beat. Then he sat too. The scent of roses enveloped him. Pearl twirled the yellow rose in her fingers. The butterfly leapt from the petals and onto her knee like a trained pet. She gently stroked its wings. You definitely like flowers and plants, he said. It's like Callaway Gardens back here. It brings me peace, she said. In life we have to hold fast to that which comforts us. What comforts you, david Hunter? Learning the truth. What if the truth is painful? she said. Then I can deal with that. For me, not knowing hurts more than anything. It is your nature to seek the truth at all costs. It is an admirable quality but you will suffer much heartache because of it. Some truths are best left uncovered, like serpents sleeping beneath rocks. Such as? She only shook her head. The butterfly crawled into her palm. She lifted her hand, and the butterfly fluttered away. He wanted to get back to a focused line of questioning. This talk of the agony of learning the truth was not helping him. He leaned forward. On the phone, you said I was responsible, that I had to prepare. What did you mean exactly? It means what it means. The message is simple, David. But what am I responsible for? It is being revealed to you. I cannot reveal it because I don't know. I thought you were supposed to be a psychic. She smiled but a thread of sadness ran through her expression. Again, I am only a receiver. Sometimes the messages are quite detailed. At other times, they're vague. The communication is uniquely tailored for each recipient, based on what they need to hear. Well, mine was very vague. I felt like I stumbled into an episode of The Twilight Zone. That's actually an apt example, she said. "'You'll be challenged to believe in that which may appear so impossible "'you'll think you have entered another reality.' "'Okay, you've got to explain what you mean by that,' he said. "'Please.' "'Oh, David,' she sighed heavily. (sighs) "'Do you believe that you're moving to Mason's Corner with a coincidence? "'You came here seeking to learn about your father. "'Please do not ask me how I know your purpose.' for to know such things is my gift. But what if everything that you have learned about your father since you've come into this town was woven into a deeper truth that you will be inclined to dismiss as impossible? You just confused me more, he said. Listen, I've seen a ghost of my granddad that basically told me to fulfill the family legacy. I found an old Bible with weird drawings. I've talked to people who've told me my father faked his death i seen a photo my dad took at that supposedly haunted mansion. Then you call me talking about how I'm responsible for something. Maybe I'm dense, but I don't see how any of those things are connected at all. I'm sorry that it's confusing, she said, but I cannot grant you any more insight on the matter. You'll have to discover the meaning on your own. He blew out a chest full of air. He felt as if he were back in his college calculus class, in which the professor would have the answer to the problem, but refused to share it no matter how frustrated the students grew. Whew. Let me tell y'all something about my math class in college. So I had this dude, right? He was a retired military asshole. Called him an MRA, even though it was RMA. Fuck it. Doesn't really matter. He was a D-I-C-K. Anyways... This dude came in and told us his name, like the first day of school, came in and told us his name. I don't remember what it was. I wiped that shit out of my head. Go fuck yourselves. Um, and he said, two things you need to know about me. One, I passed tenure, and two, I'm about to retire. What that means is, I'm going to teach you math, and I'm going to teach you you my way, and if you go and tell on me, I'm going to quit, and it don't even matter. I thought it was bullshitting until he started teaching us math that wasn't even in the fucking book. The problem with him teaching us math that wasn't even in the fucking book is that the tests he would give us were from the fucking book. So we had tests based on notes that we didn't have stuff for because he wouldn't give us the right shit so we could study. And when we asked him the questions, we were like, yeah, that's all cool and fine and shit. old retiring and your motherfucking dude. But what I need you to do is turn to page fucking five in the book. And tell me how to run that, run that shit, old man. And he look at us, this black retired military dude, and he look at us and speaks Spanish. Okay, okay. Page five, motherfucker. Can you read it? K? Do you understand? Okay. Was- I'm gonna need you to stop. K? And he K you into silence. silence. We went and told on his ass. By we, I mean me. I got tired of that shit. All that K. I heard K in my sleep. So, after I told on him, he came back later on and was like, I heard some of y'all told on me. I'm still here. And he kept teaching his way. And I fell the fuck out of that class. But then I dropped it right before it became time for me to actually, for the grade to be permanent. So, I just got a uh, incomplete. And I never went back. Fuck that dude. Fuck calculus. Did my father really fake his death? He said. Can you answer that? I haven't received an answer to that question, David. I don't know. Great, he said. Then I pretty much wasted my time coming to visit you. No, I have something I'd like to share with you. Another puzzle that will give me a migraine? He laughed bitterly. (laughs) Do I really want to hear this? Her expression was somber. I was the last person in town to see your father before he disappeared. He visited me, seeking to learn the outcome of his fishing trip. He claimed to have a bad feeling about it and wondered whether he should cancel it. What did you tell him? I told him that if he went on his trip and followed through on whatever secret mission he was embarking on, as it was clear to me he had an ulterior motive, he would pass a terrible responsibility on to you. You would be called to do something for which you had not been properly prepared. Are you serious? Do you know what Richard's response was? I spent my whole life preparing Dave for what he might need to do one day. What? David said. That's the craziest thing I ever heard. Spent his life preparing me. He was never there for me! He had not intended to shout, but the emotion exploded out of him. Sadness framed Pearl's face. That, I think, is how he believed he prepared you, she said. Saturday was the biggest lawn cutting day of the week for Junior he began begun early in the morning and steadily worked down his list of customers. So far, he'd cut five lines and earned $60. He loved the feeling of a knot of bills bulging in his pocket. He couldn't wait to get home and sock the money away in his secret hiding place. Maybe he should open an account at the bank. But Mama had warned him about trusting banks. She said they took her money and when she would go to check on it, there was less in there than what she had given them but that was a long time ago. Maybe banks were different these days. Next on Junior's lawnmower list was Doc Bennett. Junior liked the old guy. He was real sharp and full of good stories. Junior pushed his mower into the driveway and knocked on the front door. Doc Bennett came outside. Morning, Junior, he said. Sure is hot to be cutting grass. It don't bother me, Junior said. I'm used to it. I said it many times and must repeat it again. You're the hardest working man in Mississippi. John Henry wouldn't have anything on you. Who's John Henry? John Henry was a legendary African-American railroad worker, renowned for his strength. He once competed in a contest to see whether he could lay track faster than a newfangled machine. And though he won, he died soon afterward. Ain't that something... Jr. said. Man died racing a machine. You know they say computers are going to rule the world one day. So I've heard. Say, you get around town quite a bit. Have you seen my dog, Malcolm? The mutt that comes around here? No, sir. I ain't seen him. Doc Bennett looked sad. Malcolm hasn't come around today. I don't know what's become of him. Please let me know if you see him. Sure will, Doc, Junior said. He turned to start up the lawnmower, but then he looked back at Doc Bennett. The guy had a thoughtful look on his face and stared at the sky. I'm going to tell him what happened at the cave, Junior thought suddenly. Doc Bennett was the smartest man in town and would be able to make some sense of what Junior had seen. Junior could not get his own thoughts around what he had seen that night while digging with Andre, and Andre was too scared to talk about it. The scary guy in black had warned them not to tell anyone what they had seen, but Junior had to tell someone. It was eating him up inside. He'd never been good at keeping secrets. Say, Doc, Junior said, I want to tell you something. Certainly, Doc Bennett stuck his hands in the pockets of his khakis. Go ahead, my friend. It might take a little while. Doc Bennett pursed his lips. He opened the front door then I suggest you come inside. Franklin had heard some amazing tales, but nothing compared to the story that Junior Hodges told him. A nighttime job offered to Junior and his cousin by the bald black Frenchman who had moved the Jubilee. Junior and his cousin digging into a cave located on the property, an earthen tomb filled with skeletons. A mysterious man dressed in black who when he discovered Junior and Andre peeping into the cavern, flung them against the wall with an invisible force. Franklin did not want to believe it. Junior was a nice young man, but he was, unfortunately, a bit slow. Franklin did not believe that Junior was lying, but he suspected that Junior had unknowingly embellished a few elements. Even the most intellectually sound individuals found it difficult to recall incidents in flawless detail. Or perhaps, Franklin thought, I'm afraid to believe everything this young man's told me. His story goes against the grain of my beliefs. It's easier to discount his tale than accept it completely. That's all of it, Doc, Junior said, his big callous hands wrapped around a glass of water. They were in the living room, Junior sitting on the edge of the sofa, while Franklin sat in the recliner, turning his pipe in his hands. Do you, do you believe me? Franklin chose his words carefully. Junior, that is a rather astounding story. You ain't lying, Junior laughed uncomfortably. <laughs> I can't hardly believe it myself. I believe that you encountered something bizarre and unsettling, but I'll have to reserve judgment until I have more information. I'm telling the truth. His eyes were pleading. Please, you gotta believe me, Doc. I believe enough to begin an investigation. I confess that I've been curious about the motives of the persons who have moved into Jubilee. Although your story is decidedly unusual, it is far too compelling for me to dismiss out of hand. I thank you for sharing it with me. All right. Junior appeared to be satisfied. He put the half-full glass of water on the end table. I better finish cutting that grass. I got to keep to my schedule. Of course. Anytime you need to talk, Junior, I'm willing to listen. Well, thank you, Doc, Junior said. He seemed to be debating whether to speak again. Hey, what do you think of banks? Banks? I'm not sure I follow you. Would you put your money in a bank for saving? I certainly would, and I've done so for decades. We have a fine bank here in town. Are you thinking of opening an account? I kind of am, I guess. Mama didn't trust banks, but if you say I can trust them, he looked nervous. Franklin was saddened. Junior was in his early 30s and no one had taken the time to educate him on basic finances. It worried Franklin to think of what the kid had been doing with his money. I strongly encourage you to open an account, Junior, Franklin said. You're a hard-working young man, and need to protect your earnings. Give it a try, Junior grinned broadly, thanks, Doc. I'm going to take your advice. I'm going next week. Always happy to help. Franklin saw him out. Junior started up the lawnmower with a mighty pull, then began to cut the grass. Franklin returned to his chair, he tamped his pipe, lit it with a match. He considered Junior's fantastic tale. How much of it was true? Any of it? All of it? He went to the study. A large map of Mason's Corner was pinned to the wall. He had drawn the map to aid his historical research. He located Jubilee on the map and marked it with a red pencil. When Junior finished mowing the lawn, Franklin would call him inside again to determine the location of the cavern. Before he visited the cave... He needed to know where he could find it. On Saturday, Naya slept in. Last night, she had stayed at David's place until 3 in the afternoon, and by the time she arrived home, she thought she'd sleep until noon the next day. The phone rang, drawing her out of her slumber. Groggy, she reached towards the nightstand, grabbed the phone. Hello? she said. Still sleep, huh, baby? It was a man's deep voice, immediately familiar. Nia sprang up like a jack-in-the-box. Who is this? She said, knowing in her heart the answer to the question. He chuckled. You know who I am. Were you dreaming about me? It was Colin Morgan. The teacher was Stockton in Houston. The telephone handset was like a block of ice in her hand. I've been dreaming about you every night, Naya. I can't wait to touch your sexy body again. Although his words were not threatening and could even be considered romantic, in the context of the conversation, she could not have been more revolted and terrified had he screamed perverse, violent curses at her. Her stomach twisted. Don't you ever call here again, she said. Leave me alone. I can't help myself, Naya. I gotta have you. You're mine. She slammed down the phone. It rang again. She didn't pick it up. She hugged herself against the chill. The caller ID did not reveal Morgan's number or location. He was smart enough to conceal such details. Smart enough to find her unpublished phone number. Smart enough to find out where she lived? After ringing five times, the phone fell silent. Voicemail picked up after several rings. The red message indicator began to blink. She punched in the code to access her messages. It was Morgan. He spoke only one sentence in a whisper. I know where you live. Nine one six six three three one five three seven 633 1537 and Ratchet at Gmail Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Podchaser copy and paste that on the Apple Podcast. Copy and paste that on the Good Pods. You can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or at buymeacoffee.com slash SSCast or on the Good Pods app. Um I feel like I'm missing something, leaving something out I'm dope I'm missing something I don't know voicemail, email Facebook and Twitter donation places huh I don't know maybe, maybe not Well, who fucking cares, I care I mean I should but I can't remember oh yeah buy merchandise uh, that's not something I usually say, but yeah, you should, because it's fucking dope. It really is. Um, and buy the book so you can read along or read ahead. I don't really give a fuck which one you do. Just buy the book uh, from me, because when you do that from me, I get paid. And that's important because that helps me to buy books and movies for this show and for hindsight. Yeah. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm out. you later. Peace. to ratchet book club is by that kid garan and it's called goodbyes you can email him at tkgbeats 94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat This this is single simulcast